Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Suzanne Hall, Associate Professor of Sociology at the London School of Economics and Political Science, where she co-directs the series program. We'll be talking about her book, The Migrant's Paradox, Street Livelihoods and Marginal Citizenship in Britain, recently published by the University of Minnesota Press. Thank you very much, Dr. Hall, for joining us today. Thanks so much for inviting me, Elise. I'm so pleased to be participating in this podcast series. We're so happy to have you. Um, So to start off, could you briefly tell us about the paradox surrounding migration and liberal democracies in Western Europe, which is at the heart of your book? How did this paradox compel you to take on this project? If I could turn your question the other way around and start with the street, because that's how I began this project. I was really interested in the intersections between the asymmetries of global migration and the ongoing ferocities of of urban marginalization. And so uh, this is very much a project that looks at a number of streets in the urban peripheries, the deindustrialized urban peripheries across the UK, And it really asks the question of what kind of economics, what kind of livelihoods are possible in these peripheries on streets that are largely forged uh, through processes of of migration and by migrant proprietors. So what became really apparent, because this was an extended research project, was six years of of, um, observation, conversation, that started in 2012 and extended to 2017. And in this very turbulent period where we're talking to literally hundreds of proprietors over a period of time, this very grounded approach intersects with a whole political and economic circuit that is really resonating on the street. For a start, we had two UK general elections in which the questions of migration were really at the forefront. Um, The questions of inequality were thus allowed very much to recede. And we had the Brexit referendum in 2016, which was very much orchestrated around this notion of take back control of our borders. We also had uh, two immigration laws, 2014 and 2016 laws passed through Parliament. And these are very punitive migration laws. And so what we were seeing is the resonance of all of this anti-immigration rhetoric and 
policy and regulation very much resonating on the streets. And so this got me to think a lot about work around the, the liberal paradox or what Chantal Mouffe calls the democratic paradox, which is essentially about a political system that's caught between two different spheres of accountability and it doesn't know how to reconcile them. On the one hand, there is a desire to be accountable to a, a democratic process, but that democratic process is really defined as something being within the confines of sovereignty, within the borders of the nation. And then on the other hand, you have a set of principles which are really about how the nation positions itself in relation to the world. And these liberal principles then of, of rights, of uh, shared human prospects, are um, increasingly in, in tension with the, with the democratic project. And, and so this is why I end up with the title of the migrants paradox, because I not only want to signal the kind of political project at play uh, in Europe, which is a deeply contradictory project, but I also want to ask what it means to inhabit that paradox. What does it mean when your human status, let alone your citizenship status, is always called into question, even when your citizenship is conferred? What, what is it about our system that is perpetually interrogating the rights of certain groups of people to belong? And that process of interrogation is, is deeply racialized. Absolutely. And, you know, it's wonderful to see throughout the book how you sort of show us that the paradox is actually not, in many ways, the migrant's paradox, but it's um, produced through, you know, state and policymakers through various uh, processes of abstraction. And my next question is about that. Um, so could you tell us about these political processes of, you know, making migration or making human lives abstract? Um, and what do these processes create and what do they conceal? That's a great question. Thanks. Um, so sovereignty, at least sovereignty as it's currently expressed in, in the UK and in Europe, is very much sustained around the notion of the control of borders and the comprehension that there are outsiders and insiders that reside on either side of that borderline. In order to substantiate, maintain, sustain, this notion of control in a world that is in fact inherently mobile, uh, one has to then invest in an explicitly punitive border regime. And that investment in a punitive border regime really comes about in the UK through what was articulated by the Conservative government as a hostile immigration environment. So there was an intentional ideological and policy-oriented drive to make our national context explicitly hostile to migrants. And that means not only is, is, is it punitive, but it's also incredibly racialized. So what we have at play is a number of procedures and experiments uh, that are over-invested in the notion of the border as a definitive a definitive delineation between so-called insiders 
and outsiders. And I think I articulate in the book what I call the consistent production of inconsistencies in political rhetoric, in policy discourse, and in the media. But in regulatory terms, what we're beginning to see is an increase in the density and opacity of migration laws and regulations. So we have every year in Parliament more and more laws being passed. It means that it's incredibly difficult for ordinary human beings, let alone those in the legal profession, to work their way through those laws. We also have uh, an explicit removal of important layers of judicial review now from our migration system. We have enhanced the powers of bureaucratic discretion, which also means that we get very erratic and volatile sets of decision makings around who is entitled to stay and who is not entitled to stay. And we have the increased outsourcing and privatization of elements of border control. And this is not only through corporations, but also in our everyday lives. So whether you check into your GP surgery or you're sending kids to school or whether you're a lecturer at a university, we are all obliged to participate in this process of of border regulation. What it begins to generate is an incredible politics of fear and surveillance. I also begin to develop this phrase in the book, The Scale of the Migrant. And one of the ways in which the border is foregrounded and the human being is pushed to a or relegated to a background is through a scale that is aggregate and numeric. So we always talk about migration targets, uh, migration numbers, how we can get the numbers down. And we don't talk about processes. We don't talk about human beings. One of the commitments in the book is to consider what it means to bring the scale of the migrant back to the scale of the human um, and what it means to think about the conditions of a person being able to move across our our planet without consecutive procedures of punishment and violence. One of the real concerns in the book, and it's something that confronts us every day in the newspapers, whether one is looking at the deaths across the Mediterranean or the nature of deportation camps, is that in order to sustain this kind of control over this kind of conception of the border, states are having to invest excessively in violence. Um, And that is uh, another innate contradiction that uh, liberal democracies are having to contend with. Well, thank you very much for taking us through that. Um, And, you know, throughout the book, you show um, what you briefly explained to us by taking us, the readers, through multiple sites. For example, you take us through um, the meetings where these abstractions are made and um, the scale of the migrant is produced. Um, but in particular, you take us to the streets to understand um, migrants' paradox, so to speak. Um, and I want to turn back to the street a little bit. Um, you know, you show us how migration politics is often articulated through deindustrialization and urban regeneration. 
and we the streets are particularly a proposed site to see that. So how does focusing on the street enable us to understand the political economy of migration? And what were some challenges of writing the street as world, as you call it? Okay, so the streets that we work on are, are located in the far-flung parts of cities, in places that are under-resourced and over-policed. And it becomes really important through the everyday life of people trying to make livelihoods to think about a combined political economy of displacement. And here I'm trying to take the step to say, well, we cannot simply understand migration as a process that largely is regulated, determined, and produced by uh, a national border. We have to look at internal mechanisms of bordering and dispossession. And so what becomes really apparent on the street, where we are speaking to proprietors who, by and large, were never traders before they arrived in this country, um, something about the migration process, but also something about the structure of labor in this country and the, and the what happens after periods of recession means that a whole lot of people who worked in other arenas become traders on the street. They become rendered as traders. And that process, again, is, a, is an, an explicitly racialized process. So we know, for instance, in this country that the people who are likely to be made redundant over after any period of recession are what we term here black and minority ethnic groups, people from those groupings. And so this combined political economy of displacement really tries to consider the effects of dispossession of bordering in three ways. First of all, uh, the dispossession of the right to belong, what we might call citizenship, through a very volatile and violent border regime. We also see the displacement of secure work through labor deregulation and, and uh, deregulation and casualization. And we see the loss of affordable space through state-facilitated processes of regeneration. So people on the street are not simply living a definitive migratory border. They are living all of these processes of displacement at the same time. And so I think in, in many ways this requires of us to think in much more interdisciplinary ways um, about the everyday life of migration within cities. Uh, but I think it's also really important in a way to think about this always as two contending processes. And in the book, I, I talk about the one process of writing state, the relationship between state and street. And that's where I come up with this idea of the combined political economy of displacement. But I also really want to claim and foreground the notion of writing the street as world. To think about our geographic interdependencies, our cultural proximities, and our human resonance, and how we might make work and culture and social life and solidarity with respect to one another. So the project is very much trying to place these two comprehensions of how we 
connect the human being to the world um, through those 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 two footings: writing state and street, and writing street as world. Absolutely, and I, you know, I really appreciate how you show us that um, people, you know, in the streets where you work are going through these political economic processes all at once. Um, and you know what I also found very, um, very provocative about your work is that you also show that these streets are a palimpsest of colonization, of race, of ethnicity, of gender in many ways. Uh, and in some ways, you know, the every it's not just every day of the street, but the street indexes. Um, the past and the present in many ways. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little more about this approach. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really important that you've brought in the, the aspect of historic depth. So when we are, when we talk about the everyday, um, we don't simply see a reality of a here and now. We see a collection of realities that are layered over time, that shape and produce a certain kind of peripheralization and that also shape a certain kind of human subjectivity. And so it's really interesting, for instance, to ask the highly problematic question of proprietors of not only where did you come from, but what kind of journey did you have to undertake to get here? And I'm I'm not interested in the question of origin per se as a a kind of a, a nationalist question. But I am interested in understanding that on all of the streets that we looked at, and we looked at streets in London, in Birmingham, in Leicester, um, in Bristol, in Manchester, what what echoes across all of those five streets is that were we to trace a line between where proprietors have come from and where they land up, we begin to see almost a mapping of the British Empire and of the British Empire's reach into colonies. And so the resonance of that imperial project, although in historic time it may have passed, is very much resurgent in the contemporary presence of the street. Um, We also see not simply projects of of colonisation, we also see projects of political interventionism. So Quite a few of the traders on these respective streets have come to the UK by way of asylum from largely places in the Middle East where um, Britain has very much participated in a project of political interventionism. And so I think what is really uh, important here is to, to ask how the everyday, how the street allows us to see the political economy rather than the other way around. Absolutely, and I think your book does a brilliant job at this arduous task. Um, And, you know, my next question is about urban marginality, which is, you know, intrinsic to city making. And you show us that it is intrinsic through these complex uh, historical processes. And I'm particularly thinking of your concepts of edge economies and edge territories. Could you tell our listeners about these concepts and how they enhance our understanding of urban marginality? 
Thanks. I, let me start with the, the idea of edge territories. Now here I want to refer to something that's not necessarily an explicit and specific locality, but something that is always a structural and psychological edge condition. And it's about the processes through which people become marginalized in space. In this particular project, I've been explicitly interested in the market's disinvestment in labor through casualization. And I've been also interested in the state's disinvestment in people through what we term here as austerity governance, which was a, a, an attitude or a commitment to governing uh, the UK after the 2008 financial crisis, where in order to balance the books, uh, in order to kind of balance the deficit that the banking sector had put upon us, um, some £30 billion was reduced from public services, welfare supports, etc., between the period 2010 and, and 2019. And so what we see in these edge territories are local governments that are stripped of at least 50% of their budgets. And we therefore see a kind of a layering of, of, of marginalization where the state is always underinvesting in these places. It, these places are chronically under-resourced. And so what does it mean to make life and livelihood in the edge territories? Now, I, again, I don't want to relegate the edge as a position that is just simply one of deprivation and marginalization. We can think of the edge definitely as an outer limit of exclusion, and we can think of it as a kind of precipice in which people are pushed to the extreme precipice of inequality and discrimination. But I think, you know, as the wonderful work, for example, of, of Bell Hooks reminds us that we can think about margins and edges as spaces of intense creativity uh, and explicitly as a place from which to push back, to refute, and to recalibrate uh, place and self. And I think what's important in that comprehension of the edge um, is this capacity uh, for people in peripheral and marginalized conditions to redefine the terms of their participation and to escape the limited terms of integration and, and assimilation. I think it's also really important to think very carefully about this notion of edge economies. And here I want to really rethink the vocabulary of the entrepreneur, which we have been very much uh, encouraged to think of as a position of the go-getter, the person who, who does good. And I want to ask about how we think about that in a context of extreme deprivation. What does it mean to make livelihood in, in that context? And I think what is so interesting, again, when we come back to the proprietors, is that these streets are telling us that this is not a question of uh, the mom and pop corner store that does good and sends their kids on to become the next uh, generation of doctors and, and lawyers. This is, in fact, the reverse. What we're seeing on the street are people who have trained who've participated in forms of tertiary education, 
who were accountants, who were teachers, become traders. And so there's this peculiar process that happens partly through the border, partly through very constricted uh, labor structures that renders certain people as as somehow not worth as much. And so they they lose their jobs first, uh, they have to change their profession first. And so the, the street tells us about the hard work required to be an entrepreneur in and of the edge. But I think what is interesting here um, is that it also encourages us to think about edge economies not simply as a as a Western condition, as something that happens in London or in Bristol or in New York, but as something that actually has a, a explicit affinity to the kinds of economies that are also made in Dakar, in Cape Town, etc. Um, and this is increasingly interesting to me, and I work a lot in the book with the, the really magical and inspiring work of Abdul Malik Simone, who writes a lot about provisionality and what it means, again, to claim a livelihood when the state, in fact, is, is, is barely present or, or if it is present, is, it has quite a repressive presence. So the edge, you know, is doing, is doing many things for me, but most of all, it is forefronting these everyday realities of living simultaneously with exclusion and and with creativity in order to find and claim a place. Absolutely. Um, and I found it really generative that, you know, alongside showing how underinvestment produces urban marginality, you also show us that margins or edges are often pulled into the center through urban regeneration projects. And in these times, people occupying the margins develop everyday ways to push back against displacement. Could you tell our listeners about the unheroic resistance, in your words, that arises when the streets and urban regeneration meet? Yeah, thank you. So I'm going to talk a little bit from a street that is actually very close to where I live. It's a street in South London. And like many places in London, again, following the 2008 financial crisis, global speculators and financiers have been looking for places to secure profit and to secure capital gain. And one of the sites has been um, the so-called global cities across the world. And so in a place like London, we've seen a huge financialization of the property market. And so it starts off in the center. And when the center becomes oversaturated, it starts to move towards the peripheries and it pulls the periphery in towards the center to try and make it more like the center. It tries to produce a set of projects and cultural practices and images of life that really speak to granite-clad surfaces and birch trees. And it speaks to a centrality that is very much imagined and rendered through a set of surfaces, people, and interactions that really denies the vitality of the periphery. And this process of pulling the edge towards the center is very often facilitated by the state in 
the language of urban regeneration. What we have unfortunately seen across the world and explicitly in a city like London is that these projects of large-scale regeneration very often go hand-in-hand with large-scale displacements of people. And Anya Roy refers to this really importantly as a process of racial banishment. And what is really interesting for me looking at the street in South London was the kind of pushback that occurred on the street when people felt that their interests weren't being adequately represented in the regeneration process. What we begin to see is a whole lot of unlikely coalitions. So you have uh, street proprietors coming together with interdisciplinary uh, activists, with religious groupings, and even with heritage enthusiasts. And they combine their sets of interests into a into a kind of collective concern and they find ways of making that collective concern be heard. I think what is interesting about this process is that it tends to be pragmatic before it is ideological. So people are not necessarily using the articulation of the right to the city. Uh, but in fact are beginning to to enact it. And I think what happens is that the solidarities of the street, once people have formed a kind of collective affinity, begin to be utilised for a whole variety of concerns that are about wanting to have some kind of recognition in processes that are often outside of their control. So I think this idea of unheroic resistance, of the kind of daily grind of calling a meeting, taking minutes, writing to councillors, is a really important and constitutive dimension of resistance. It lives side side by side with other processes of resistance that also work through the street. So, for instance, the street that we looked at in South London uh also sustained uh one of the august 2011 uprisings where people came out on the streets uh to protest quite vigorously against cuts to education and also to processes of over policing so the street is a venue for both everyday and more vigorous processes of collective registering where people feel that they have been pushed to a point where they have enough, have had enough, and they want to really assert a different articulation of a different politics. I think it's really interesting, again, how we see this resonating more globally through a variety of processes, not least of which would be the Black Lives Matter movement, but also the Extinction Rebellion movements, where we're seeing a huge political agitation from the street and much less political imagination from the electoral elements of formalized politics. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about your methodology. So what was in your methodological toolbox as you researched and wrote The Street as World? 
Thanks, Elise. I think I think the toolbox always begins with the ground. And so, you know, I mentioned that we'd conducted this period of research over six years, and I say we, that we obviously shifted uh, uh, over the, the six-year period, but it generally constituted of a group of people from interdisciplinary backgrounds, so architects, sociologists, geographers, anthropologists. And of course, the we then expands to people who we met along the way who could begin to articulate a, a local connection to, to those streets. We begin the process always by walking the street, and we walk the street for a, a, a long period of time and, and try and get a sense of, of the whole, so to speak. And so that first process is very much grounded. It's sensory, it's proximate, but I'm also aware that in any process of walking, eh, we encompass both the the stepping into and the passing by. So there are things that that we miss as well. And I think often what we miss is in relation to our own positionality, who we are, where we've come from. Um, The minute we start talking to people, uh, and we understand them not simply as proprietors, but as fully-fledged three-dimensional urban citizens who have concerns about a present and a future, who are interacting with politics, with culture, then there is a, a larger resonance that moves out of the street to a wider set of concerns. And it's really important to follow those multiple threads methodologically. So it becomes really important, for instance, to look at policy documents that tell us about the ways in which migration law is changing. It becomes really important to look at archival material that traces the long thread of colonization and its current reincarnations in in coloniality. And so the the, the method is, is essentially grounded, but it is also quite diverse and and it 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 frays off down different avenues depending on on what is said to us also in the first year it's very much about this process of walking listening talking in the second it's second year of each time we're on the street very much about trying to engage explicitly with how the street is understood by different communities of interest. So we speak to planners, authorities, we speak to local activist groups, and that gives us a conception of how the street is, in a way, articulated um, in both political terms, political in the sense of elected officials, local authorities, but as, as well as community and activist groups. Um, so the methodology is circuitous, but it is it's it's important, I think, to embrace these circuitous methodologies. And I think you can only do that when you've got extended time periods to see where the route takes you. Absolutely. And I love how you know you always refer to your methodology um in terms of a we rather than an I, and that really comes across in the book. Um, and actually, my next question was about that. So, 
know, throughout the book, your collaborative ways of visualizing the street really stood out to me, especially, you know, the world to street maps, which you mentioned a little bit when we were talking about empire and colonization or plans of interior spaces. And it makes much more sense now, you know, learning more about this interdisciplinary work. So I'm curious about whether you see mapping, visualization, and collaboration as uh, methods that constitute your work. And also, you know, what does it mean to visualize a space as a we? Wow, great (laughs) question. I should say that I had a previous life prior to academia, so I practiced as an architect. And this process of making a building is something inherently collaborative and it's also explicitly visual. And so always within the research, right from early days as a PhD student, one of the ways of listening and the ways of seeing was through drawing, that one could make sense not simply in walking and talking, but actually putting pen to paper. And for me, that process of pen to paper is a is a process of figuring out. It's not necessarily a process of concluding. So I don't think necessarily of the illustration as an end state. And in fact, we often make our drawings together in the early stages of the research. We pin them up on our walls and we talk about them and we use them to ask questions uh, more than to draw conclusions in the first instance. But you'll see in the book, and I want to call out the names here, that people have made fabulous drawings as part of this exploratory process. So we've got Julia King, Sadiq Tofa, Nicholas Palominas, Thomas Aquilina, uh, people who um, have either been students or who, who have had paths intersect with me in different ways. And they bring in again, different ways of seeing. They are incidentally also all from different parts of the world. And so when one goes to a place like Leicester, you know, in the middle of the UK, you've got someone seeing it from the perspective of Latin America and someone else seeing it from the perspective of South Africa. And these crisscross ways of seeing, I think, are also really important collaborations. I should also say that I didn't necessarily intend at the outset for the work to be collaborative. You know, my PhD work, as I'm sure yours was, was fairly solitary. Um, But it's become really integral to my way of making, and it's it's a way of having an extended set of conversations beyond yourself that are absolutely vital for the process of thinking and making. The visualizations uh, are also a way of seeing the we because there is something about understanding how culture and politics is made from the inside out. And so, for instance, when we spend time almost in dialogue with a room that someone inhabits, then it becomes really crucial to pay attention to the objects that they arrange, the way they're arranged, the surfaces that they've employed, uh, how the rentals that they're paying affects their arrangement of space, how where they've come from affects their arrangement of space, 
how they're experimenting or are captive to the space. All of these different dimensions of surface material um, and affect are a way of comprehending people's articulations of self. And I think what's really interesting as well is this interior articulation of of who I am in the world and what I make in the world. So these, you know, it's impossible to see these interiors as anything other than layers of making. Um, and I, they've become these these mappings of of interior rooms have become really important ways of spending time up close with individuals and understanding how they make and they claim space at quite an intimate scale. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is really wonderful to know. And I'm sure our listeners who are grappling with their own projects will learn a lot from this. Um, So my last question is about what is next for you? And, you know, since we've talked about these circuitous routes, maybe... Um, you know, saying what's next doesn't necessarily uh, capture this, but I'm wondering what are some projects, issues, questions that are currently on your agenda? So um, I come from two worlds. I, I am a South African who lives in London. And I've been desperate for a long time to go back to South Africa to make work. And over the last year, despite the lockdown, I've been working with incredible colleagues there, Henrietta Nyamjo and Liza Rose Tirolia. And we've been following the life of women who have come to Cape Town in South Africa from the DRC. And these women are seeking life and livelihood as well as asylum. And we're asking what kind of city is available to them um, in the context of a society that's had to live through decades not only of colonization but also decades of apartheid and so we're interested in the intersections of race and space and gender and we're really interested as well in how these women work the city in order to make work workable and life livable so that's a process that um I'm very much involved in at the moment. It's making me think much more consciously and carefully about sexuality as well as gender. And I think this is something that I I haven't considered enough. Uh, So it's a joy to be able to enter into that both as an empirical exploration, but also as a conceptual and and a theoretical exploration. Questions of intimacy um, are really key to this. And also the ways in which women have to strictly budget their time and space in order to be able to work the city. So that's that's been a, a really strong area of focus and commitment. I am also interested in not simply the violence of sovereignty and the absolute delineations of border, Um, I'd like to step out of that and I'd like to step into questions of migrancy that exist outside of sovereignty. And this is really about a different comprehension of a borderscape that I guess is much more about both historic and contemporary practices of crossing, um, where we look at practices of 
coming together in order to make things rather than these hideous regulations uh, and definitions of insider and outsider that have come to define far too explicitly the limits of our humanity. I would like to spend a little bit of time thinking much more about the shared possibilities of our planetary future. And so, you know, what would it mean to think of processes of migrancy outside of the limits of sovereignty is a, is a question I would like to delve more into. Wonderful. We'll be looking forward to those books or articles or whatever they result in. Uh, and thank you very much, Dr. Hall, for joining us and your insights. Thank you so, so much for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Likewise. <laughs> I'm your host, Eliza Arjan. This discussion of the migrants' paradox, street livelihoods and marginal citizenship in Britain, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. <laughs>